It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. We're recording on Monday, April 5th, after a brief hiatus for the Pesach Passover holiday. Hope it was restorative and liberating for all of you who are celebrating. Our family got to be in person, inside, unmasked with a few family members who were vaccinated, and it was very special. Kind of a beginning, felt like the beginning of a lifting of this very difficult cloud uh, over the past year. And I hope that whoever you were with over the past week, you were able to get some good family time or personal time. We are deep in the heart of what I like to call memory season, a term I used in my book, Shuva, The Future of the Jewish Past, describing this long period on the Jewish calendar, which actually stretches all the way back from Purim through Passover, and now through this newer wave of holidays, what some people call Israel's high holidays. Uh, Yom HaShoah, uh, Holocaust Memorial Day this week, Yom HaZikaron, Israel's Memorial Day for its fallen soldiers and victims of terror, uh, next week. A long stretch of time, basically six, seven weeks, in which we're talking about memory all the time, but actually expressing it in such dramatically different ways. I've been fascinated by the phenomenology of Jewish memory for a long time and the different performances of them. Passover, where we narrate a story that none of us actually participated in through ritual, through storytelling, through performance, where the whole work is around creating intimacy with a story that none of us actually remember, versus these new holidays of Jewish memory, where oftentimes there are people around the table, increasingly less so, who uh, were victims of the Holocaust, who were victims uh, as Israeli soldiers um, of the recent past, and playing out the ritualization of memory in totally different ways. A lot more for us to talk about, about how we do the ritualization of memory. My colleagues at Hartman uh, have built what they call a heat kansud, a new form of gathering in Israeli society for the performance of Holocaust memory. In fact, they built an interactive website for people to build Haggadot, uh, like the Passover Seder, to actually be able to build out our own version of telling a story uh, because we understand how powerful it is to not just remind ourselves about things that happened in the past, but actually narrate their meaning. But increasingly in our own time, memory is not just a ritual or religious act, but a political one as well, especially as it relates to Holocaust and anti-Semitism, Jewish suffering. And there, the consequences of how we choose to remember the Holocaust have huge moral and political implications for how we as Jews act in the world, but equally how we expect others to act towards Jews. And a quote from you, uh, an essay written by Leora Bilski and James Leffler that's appearing in this week's Atlantic. The essay is titled, How Should We Remember the Holocaust Today? A Forgotten Poem's Message for Our Time. And here's the quote. The problem today is not, as is often claimed, that we possess too little Holocaust memory, nor, for that matter, do we suffer from Holocaust memory overload. 
After all, memory is not data. We cannot simply bundle it into packets that we then deposit in the hands of the next generation or plug into moral algorithms. Nor is memory a sacred flame that we must zealously guard lest powerful winds or other competing fires threaten to overwhelm it. Rather, memory is an ongoing process of active reckoning with the past from the vantage point of the present. The duty of remembrance is inseparable from the burden of moral reasoning with that memory. So here today to talk to us today about memory and literature and the politics of all of this is Jim Leffler, one of the co-authors uh, of that essay in The Atlantic. Jim is, I'll give you his titles, the J. Berkowitz Professor of Jewish History, the Ida and Nathan Collides Director of Jewish Studies at the University of Virginia. He's the author of several books. I want to particularly flag Rooted Cosmopolitans, Jews and Human Rights in the 20th Century. That'll become relevant, a book that came out from Yale in 2018. And as of this year, uh, a senior fellow at the Kogod Research Center in the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. I'm saying that to him here so that he'll put it now in his bio on the University of Virginia website. Jim, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today on Identity Crisis to talk about all of this. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's already in the bio. No worries. Fantastic. I'm relieved. Um, Jim, let's start with um, this essay. It's, you wrote beautifully about Holocaust memory. As I was reading it, I identified with it. I want to unpack a number of pieces with it about what it means to think about memory as something different than what can be preserved, as memory has to be something cultivated. But um, you're writing this not just as a reflection on memory, but in particular because you have found, uh, together with your co-author, and are kind of resurfacing a poem by Raphael Lemkin, uh, the attorney who lobbied for the Genocide Convention of 1948, kind of put genocide on the radar of the international community. And you have you are arguing that this poem, um, I think titled Genocide, um, is a critical piece of what Lemkin was trying to do. So let's start there. Um, who is Lemkin? Why does Lemkin matter beyond what we're going to find about him in a Wikipedia page? Why does Lemkin's poetic identity matter just as much when we think about this question of the meaning of genocide in the 20th century as much as his political activity. Look, I would say I'm someone who came to an interest in this individual, Raphael Lemkin, um, late. Uh, I started off as an historian working on the history of East European Jewry right, and their legacies and uh, their experiences. And uh, then, as you mentioned, I got into the study of um, the history of human rights and its Jewish links and its contemporary controversies. And I was never a specialist in Holocaust or genocide. In fact, I would say personally, I got interested in Jewish studies, Dafka, because I felt this was, um, as part of the Hartman message often is, that we need to focus on, you know, uh, what we're going to do in the world, not what the world is doing to us. Um, so Lemkin's an interesting figure in that story because um, he was a Polish Jewish lawyer, as you mentioned. He's somebody who was born um, before World War I, grows up in the 20s and 30s, um, passes through the traumatic events of the 40s, loses a tremendous amount of his family, escapes uh, and makes it to the U.S. where he coins this word genocide during World War II. And then from there on, he pursues kind of a, a campaign, some call it a crusade, to get the world to approve a law, an international law against genocide. He's at the Nuremberg trials, and here we can mention that this is, uh, we're in the midst of the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg trials, um, and he's pretty unsuccessful there in getting what he wants, which is this crime to be recognized by everyone as an international crime that deserves a law. And then he succeeds uh, in 1948 with this law. What happens after that is kind of a confusing picture, and it's confusing first and foremost because steadily over the decades, the idea of a law for, against genocide 
gathers uh, signatures, gathers support, uh, until we get into the post-Cold War era, when all of a sudden um, there is tremendous interest in it and there are new genocides happening, and there's tremendous interest from scholars, from lawyers. The most famous example is that of Samantha Power, the journalist turned diplomat, who makes him kind of the hero of her story about what the U.S. hasn't done and therefore should do about combating genocide, from the Armenian genocide through the Holocaust onwards. What got me interested in him, as since I said I didn't start off to focus on anti-Semitism or Holocaust, was that no one really was looking at what he was doing in the couple decades he lived, not as an activist and not as a campaigner, um, but as a Polish Jew um, in the heart of the Jewish world, which was destroyed. And what got me interested in that was that uh, he has become kind of like the word genocide, a symbol which is bandied about um, by all different manner of causes and activists um, in debating how to stop genocide, debating what is genocide, and debating Holocaust memory. So I've said a lot there, but I would just frame it this way. Anywhere you look in the world today, whether we look at Poland and we see the debates there about the criminalization of Holocaust memory and of scholarship, whether we look in the Israeli-Palestinian context and the fights over Shoah, over Nakba, the question of Israeli and Palestinian violence towards one another, whether we look today about anti-Semitism and Holocaust analogies in the U.S., Lemkin pops up. The question of what is a genocide pops up. But few of us go back to actually look at him. And so I was drawn to his life because it turns out he grappled with these issues too. Surprise, surprise, right? And so if we look at this poem that um, I uncovered with a colleague in Israel, and you look at his attempt to kind of figure out these problems that we think of as so new about what is the difference between universal memory and Jewish memory, about what is the difference between an atrocity and a genocide. He's thinking about those. He's grappling with them. And so I believe it can help us think through these things to kind of recover his Jewishness and his, his active engagement with these problems. There's a lot there. I certainly want to come back to the universal question, because if I'm not mistaken, Lemkin's first thinking about this was actually not through the prism of the Jewish experience, but it was because of the Armenian genocide, <laughs> right? The Armenian genocide has a first impact. I mean, maybe they're inseparable. Well, I would put it to this way. I think it's murkier than it has been presented to us, including by him. If we go with his first, first experience, he repeatedly told a story, and the story was, even as a young child in Eastern Europe, I was concerned about the suffering of others far away. So it wasn't just me through the terror of pogroms and the terror of anti-Semitism, right? Um, and I think that was probably true, and he was deeply impacted by what he saw happening in World War I um, with the genocide against the Armenians, as well as the violence that was directed against the Jews, against where he was living in Poland, what would become Poland too. So it's not just that he worried first about another people's uh, trauma. Um, it was never, I would say, fully separable from what he experienced. And it's interesting because in the 20s and 30s, he doesn't actually talk about the Armenians. Um, he spends a lot of time talking about anti-Semitism, a lot of time talking about what can we do to prevent the anti-Semitism from happening right now, and what can we do to secure the existence of vulnerable minorities and groups starting with us. So that kind of entanglement is there from the beginning, and that gets forgotten for reasons that have to do with his own later biography and our lapses of memory. 
So do you think he's narrating back the importance of the Armenian genocide as a child in order to precisely make the claim, I'm not merely talking about genocide because this happens to my people, but because I'm signaling, I, I see this around me. In other words, there's a weird apologetic sometimes Jews have to make when they want to talk about genocide, which is, no, no, we're not just talking about genocide as pertains to us. Don't worry, others are also included. It's exactly that, right? So I think that what we experience today, this constant challenge to say, we want to tell our story and we want to alert the world, but we feel like we also have to justify it, as you said. He's, he's operating in that world too. There's nothing um, more difficult in 1920s or 1930s Poland than to articulate a Jewish concern without being accused of betraying Polish nationalism or even simply being parochial and narrow and provincial and morally insular. And so he faces that uh, challenge and directly, I mean, he gets, he gets attacked for raising these questions. And so he's kind of having to, I believe, justify a concern. And you have to remember, this is also begins before the Holocaust, right? He doesn't imagine that it's gonna happen. He just worries something bad will happen. This feels like one of the weirdest double-edged moral traps that the Jewish people have found themselves in for a long time, which is you can live through uh, an unimaginable catastrophe to your own people, but you still have to make sure that others don't feel that by talking about it, you're too parochial, <laughs> right? There's something crazy about that, right? And I think Jews do it themselves, but it's also a condition that is a condition of modernity, especially Raphael Lemkin, he's living in a world that we still live in too, which is a world framed by the Enlightenment and by a Christian Western civilization that is making space for Jews and Jews are making space for themselves, but it's still framed in terms of these age old dichotomies between Jewish particular and universal, whatever that means. So he's caught on that trap and he's struggling with it. You're basically saying there's two Lemkins. There's Lemkin of law and there's Lemkin of lore, right? Lemkin of law is the genocide convention. It's a political process It gets ratified in of all years, 1948, a lot of happens in 1948, um, gets ratified in 1948. Many of the countries in the world are signatories. There are still new signatories. I think there was the most recent new signatory maybe two years ago. And a few times in history have been the prosecutions of genocides on the basis of those conventions. In addition to that, what you're suggesting is that there's the Lemkin of lore, which is not just the law process, but actually the production of something else that is I don't know what we would call it, literary, spiritual, religious. Let's unpack the, those two moves. What's the difference, right, conceptually between the work of trying to put rules in place for the world to be able to identify, name, and define a genocide versus the language and the poetry and the rhetoric that we use in talking about genocide, which never can get into a court of law, but shapes us differently. How do you see the difference between those two? Because I'll just tell you, put my cards on the table. I'm really skeptical of the former. I'm really skeptical of, of the codification of law processes. And I'm drawn to the rhetoric and literature of memory for all the reasons you said in the piece that we quoted, because that stuff ultimately endures the test of time very different than the stuff of a courtroom. Do you see that as a dichotomy? Help us understand the difference between those two moves, how you see it in Lemkin, but also how you see it as a historian. Uh, that's a terrific question. I guess I see it like halacha and agada, right? I guess I see it like within the Jewish, not everything has to be likened to the rabbinic tradition. But here there is a parallel where we can learn something, right? Thinking outwards from it, right? We have a legal tradition which includes the hard law 
and then it includes the lore around it. And that's what the rabbis decided had to be in there too, to make it legible, to make it you know, resonate, right? I see a dichotomy, but I see them as inextricably linked too, right? You can't fully separate them at risk of losing either the imaginative capacity of law to get us to embrace it or losing the structure. So um, like you, I'm a little cynical actually about what that law can do simply on its own. But perhaps I'm also cynical about the lore part of it. Memory is very fickle. Lemkin spent a lot of time running around from government to government telling them a story that he thought would convince them to ratify this convention. At the same time, I write in another context, his greatest creation was the image of himself, right? The image of himself as like a heroic, striving, refugee, survivor, prophetic voice, because he knew that's what the world needed. And he was sort of a norms entrepreneur. And he knew that you needed to convince the world with an image that would resonate in order to get the idea of genocide to become a taboo. Right, to become an atrocity taboo that, that you could use this word. What we've struggled with is that he kind of succeeded with that taboo, right? That word is a word that we, when the U.S. Senate calls something genocide, when a corporation calls something genocide, when a faith leader says something's genocide, people perk up and listen. But then, of course, there's the problem of what do you actually do about it, which is a political legal problem. And then there's the problem that it's such a powerful symbol and taboo that it's also can be deployed in all kinds of different arenas, right? In other words, he tried to solve one problem by saying the lore will take us through. The lore is what will touch the hearts and minds of people. But as I'm saying, in doing so, it creates a problem because it creates a new kind of symbolic language, which is so suggestive and so seductive that who wouldn't want to use it? Right? And that's, in fact, what happens already in that moment in time as people begin in 1948, as you mentioned. Both Israelis and Palestinians in 1948 accuse one another of practicing genocide. So the perception, perhaps, that we have that there was kind of a pristine Holocaust memory and the world stood up and responded to it and they understood what had happened to the Jews. And then, fast forward a few decades, things get more complicated, right? You know. Now we have power, now the Jews are different, now the world is different. That's not really what happened. From the get-go, he struggled with this recognition that everyone was immediately going to say, how can I use this, how does it impact me? You know, Because you've now defined a new kind of ultimate crime. And so it's going to be that everyone is going to see that crime through the prism of their own experience. And they're going to ask, is this something that my people experience too? And if I acknowledge yours, what does that do for mine, right? So that terrible dilemma we live with, it began already in his time. I think it's darker than that, though. I'm sorry to say. I can't help but get a sense that sometimes Jews think that coming up with defining the term, whether it's genocide or in the last six months, anti-Semitism, in defining the term, we're going to use that definition to save us. Having a definition will solve the problem. As if to say, right, if the UN ratifies a convention on genocide, then it not only will be able to prosecute the offenders afterwards, but that it somehow will have a prophylactic effect. It will prevent the possibility from genocide, because who would ever want to perpetrate a genocide? There's a kind of wishful thinking with it. I guess my preferred darker side is the nothing is going to protect us. Right? Like the Passover Seder line, which I find very dark, in every generation, the same thing that held up in every generation, in every generation they tried to rise up to kill us and God saves us, where we wink kind of when we say that in the Passover Seder, because sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not. But there's a certain, at least 
acknowledgement of the consistency of persecution and the lack of belief that any of these legal structures are actually going to solve it. I mean, did Lemkin think this was going to solve genocide or did it at least give us a kind of police-like tool to be able to prosecute it after the fact? Right. His dilemma was he was conflicted about that. And I think one of the challenges, which has also earned him the attacks that he's currently begun to experience from some scholars of genocide, is that he compromised himself politically and morally in order to turn it into a tool with teeth, right? So what I'm referring to is the fact that Lemkin becomes a a very strong, staunch anti-communist, and he is willing also to make alliances with different groups and governments in order to press this, to give it teeth, to use it against the Soviet Union, who he believes is still practicing genocide against uh, Jews and others after World War II. But he's also willing to kind of turn blind eye to other questions about the United States, about racial segregation. What this means is he still has to make these political choices, you know, to make it real. I think you're right that that's the dilemma about it. It can't do as much as we wish it would do by itself. A definition by itself is never anything other than a tool with which we then have to decide you know, what are we going to do with this tool? How are we going to make it actually, you know, what's the nail it has to hit? Where is it going to be used? Who gets to use it? He is an example of that. I think you're right, that mania for definitions that we have, that if we could just have a definition, we'll kind of have a clarity. It can prevent stuff. But even he realizes that's not enough. We actually need to do the work of politics, which is messy, which is ugly, which brings up again this question that he struggles with, which we mentioned, which is, Am I speaking for myself as a Jew or am I speaking for myself now as an American citizen? Am I speaking for myself now as, you know, someone who holds the legacy of East European Jews or am I speaking for some global community, right? So that's the challenge that is, that comes with definitions. I want to come back to a more programmatic or prescriptive question a little later on near the end. And what do we have to do actually about Holocaust memory going forward? I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit to move out of maybe scholar mode and into pundit mode. But but before that, you know, let's stay on definitions. You said there's this instinct and need for definitions. And whether it's because, as I suggested, we naively believe that these definitions are going to solve the problem or whether they, even if it, the more limited goal is that it's a probative tool, if it's available to me, then it's something I can use politically. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we had Stacey Burdett on the show to talk about the one definition of anti-Semitism that had emerged through an organization called IRA, IHRA. Since that show, two other definitions have emerged, one by a kind of startup organization called Nexus, which is focused specifically on the nexus between Israel and anti-Semitism. And the second, explicitly in response to the IRA definition, called the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism, which responded less to the content of the IRA definition, they're very explicit about it, and more by what they perceive as the slipperiness of the definition and its possible or already latent misuse. Uh, In particular, the ways in which it is being misused, according to the authors of the definition, to prosecute free speech around Israel-Palestine and to stifle discourse on Israel-Palestine. So we now have three working definitions, uh, to use Ira's language of itself, on anti-Semitism. So first, just to put our cards on the table, you're a 
signatory, uh, I think, of the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism. Um, that doesn't mean you necessarily like everything it says or disagree with the others. But let's try to unpack, maybe by analogy, to the codification of genocide, what's going on right now with the need for uh, the codification of these rules around anti-Semitism. Why now? And again, what do we think that the various authors think that they're doing with trying to come up with a definition of anti-Semitism? So the first thing I would say about that is that just to go back to our rabbinic analogy, you know, codification comes at moments of crisis. And I think that's true with definitions also, right? So we can look at the genocide definition as emerging from an obvious moment of crisis in which it just not only had atrocities happen, the Holocaust had happened, but people didn't really know what to do about it. They didn't know what law should do after World War II, since international law had seemingly failed to prevent all this atrocity and war. And so we're in another moment today, uh, an extended moment, where there's a crisis that we all know about of um, surging global anti-Semitism, and there's a crisis of interpretation, right, explaining why it's reemerged and response. And there's almost an epistemological crisis, I think, about understanding what it is. So there's different definitions. Um, you know, I'll say something perhaps um, unscholarly and say it's good to have this debate. It's good to have these definitions because it forces us to think, even as we've said earlier in our conversation today, that, you know, Erecting a definition can be kind of a desperate impulse or a, you know, a fool's errand. It's also a way of thinking through the problem. So the IRA you refer to emerges from one context, which is, I think, really the context of Europe in the past two decades plus of mounting anti-Semitism and a, and a kind of panic about what that was and how to respond to it. And as um, others who, who have uh, helped define it and create that explain that there was a specific context to that, right, that it was supposed to try and help educate governments and police forces and institutions about what anti-Semitism is, what a hate crime in anti-Semitic terms is. And the more recent definitions, the dueling pair, if you will, that do involve a lot of overlap between different people, come out of an attempt to try and respond to IRA's growth dramatically and its, its uses and potential abuses that have forced us to kind of revisit this in the context specifically of the United States and of Israel-Palestine, right? So what's going on? I think many people, myself included, feel that IRA has become a kind of totem, like genocide, you know, that, that people point to, that people cite, and don't even read, right, and don't even explore. And it's particularly troubling to see it become, you know, things are always politicized, but to see it kind of instrumentalized in ways that take it to the heart of other contexts and conflicts, but don't give us the way to think about it. It just becomes a zero-sum game. So I think both the Nexus definition you mentioned and the JDA, the Jerusalem definition, um, are intended ultimately to spark debate and conversation, to force us to slow down and think about these things, because there has been a race, particularly in the past couple of years, right, to kind of formalize them and to kind of codify them in ways that really constrain us from healthy debate and nuanced analysis of what anti-Semitism is, let alone the legal questions. Yeah, and needless to say, those who codify, those who canonize, those who make the rules, there's also a lot of power at play. And that can be power that is played out by people already in power through the process of codification and therefore prosecution of their enemies. Or it can be a power play itself. Since we are the ones who come up with this term, that grants us the ability to police the use of that term in the places that we like and that we don't like. There seems to be two substantive differences between these definitions 
if this was a different kind of show or a different kind of workshop, we could do a real deep tech study. And it, it's not a bad thing to do, actually. And we'll link in the show notes to the three different definitions. People can do a little bit of their own tech study on this. There, there are two big substantive differences, though, that kind of course through these three definitions. The first, which relates to our conversation earlier, is, is really about the question of universality, which is how much do we want anti-Semitism to be its own unique thing? And how much should anti-Semitism be thought of as part of a family of hatreds, right? It is mostly like racism with maybe a few slight differences and slight exceptions. And certainly the Jerusalem definition leans much more heavenly in that direction, like moving away from the notion that anti-Semitism can be defined totally in particularistic terms. I think I get a little bit of what that's about, but what's it about for you? What do you think is at play there in the need to try to not allow anti-Semitism to become its own exceptionalist discourse? Yeah, I mean, in a funny way, I don't want to make everything in our conversation, you know, thread back on itself, but it's a lot like Holocaust and genocide too, right? Is the Holocaust unique or is it one of a family of genocides? And the answer is both, right? And I think that's true with anti-Semitism also. The Jerusalem definition to me is an attempt, like the others, and none is perfect, but I think it's a smart attempt to try and define both a distinctive kind of hatred that is anti-Semitism, which is sui generis. It is its own thing but then to understand it in relationship to other hatreds, right? It deserves to be named and conceptualized as what it is, which is a kind of hatred with distinctive features, right? Built on a certain corpus of myths, a certain corpus of images, right? And yet to understand also that it sits inside, it can't be divorced from the reality of other kinds of hatred, and its analysis cannot be divorced from the world we live in, right? And to me, the the main point of the Jerusalem Declaration, actually, we should call it, is that we should be understanding this as something that cannot be simply stripped completely out of context. That we have to recognize that Jews can be empowered and powerless, and that may depend on the context. That Jews can be enmeshed in a nationalist conflict in which the other side may have deeply felt convictions about their identity and about their need to define themselves, even as we deserve the right to define ourselves. And to me, it's that balancing act which is very unsatisfying to most people, but that's what we need to be doing. And that's what I think actually all the definitions are trying to do. Um, and if you take a view from 30,000 feet, that's what they're trying to do, right? Which is to say, let's balance a recognition of the distinctive features of anti-Semitism with the fact that it is part of a family of hatreds. The other major difference between the three, and I think probably the most probative one in terms of why three different emerge, are really about Zionism and Israel slash Palestine. The main criticism that emerged around Iro was, I think, seven of the 11 examples that Ira gives about the possibilities of anti-Semitism relate to Israel. The critics of Ira claim that it is used to suppress actual genuine criticism of the state of Israel by classifying too widely various positions about Israel as being anti-Semitic. So as one key example in the IRA definition, one of the examples that they give is denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor. And you can hear in the other two definitions, Nexus and the Jerusalem Declaration, a kind of toggling around that language. So Nexus says it is anti-Semitic to treat Israel in a negative manner based on a claim that Jews alone should be denied the right to define themselves as a people and to exercise any form of self-determination. 
It's actually quite similar <laughs> to the IRA definition, but it's trying to focus on uniquely that Jews are prevented from having the rights of self-determination. The Jerusalem Declaration, however, moves in a little bit of a different direction, which is because the Jerusalem Declaration doesn't just have examples of criticism of Israel that are anti-Semitic. It also says, what are the forms of criticism of Israel that are not anti-Semitic? And that's where nationalism arises, um, including, as it says um, in the Jerusalem Declaration, it's not anti-Semitic to support arrangements that accord full equality to all inhabitants between the river and the sea, which is an incredibly interesting thing to put into this declaration, whether in two states, a binational state, unitary, de democratic state, federal state, or whatever form. So I don't want to put you on the spot to, of why you like one as opposed to the other, but let's unpack a little bit. You know, our colleague Shaul Magid had a Facebook post about this where he basically said, if all we're doing is arguing about Israel-Palestine, why are we calling these definitions of anti-Semitism? Why don't we just call this arguments about Israel-Palestine? It kind of had that sense, like, and especially when you look at the list of the signatories, this is an argument about the boundaries of criticism of Israel. Now, what is gained by referring to this as being an actual conversation about anti-Semitism? Right. What is gained? What is gained about talking about all this, even though I've just told you I think it's, you know, an important, necessary exercise. So here's the answer I'd give you. First of all, both the Nexus and Jerusalem declarations are attempts to recognize that the debate about Israel-Palestine has fully enmeshed itself in the heart of discussions about anti-Semitism. We can't imagine them separate. If anything, there's a danger that we only talk about that. Um, but we're there, right? It's a recognition that we've gotten to this point. And so if we're going to navigate through this moment, we have to be able to engage more dexterously, right? We have to be able to talk about these things. We have to be able to be specific about this. The virtue of having these definitions is hopefully that we can do it in a way in which we can understand what is political speech and what is hatred. And these may be related and they can become the same thing. But I was attracted to the Jerusalem Declaration, not because I thought it was perfect and not because I knew who was signing it, but because I felt here is a statement which basically tries to acknowledge where we're at. I should add that the Nexus is, and it's important, I think, for listeners to know this, the Nexus was not a mass signature event, right? So a lot of people, terrific principal people signed it. It was more emerging from a specific kind of initiative. So it wasn't a, it's not a competition between favorability, even though there are differences which are and should be debated. So we're in this moment, and how are we going to think our way through it? And to me, that has to involve looking at the rhetoric that's used, right? The virtue of the Jerusalem Declaration is to kind of engage with the rhetoric there, these flashpoint phrases, and say, okay, what is this phrase, and what context does it appear? I ultimately think that we are not only going to see these debates play out. Um, and here I would, if you'll indulge me, pivot for a second and say, we may be, as some people like to say, the canary in the coal mine when it comes to you know what is happening with hatred in the world or violence in the world. But we're never the only community that can experience it. And we're never the only community that can have these bizarre, complex intersections emerge. I have increasingly noticed that one of the fascinating things is the same rhetoric about national identity, about nationalism, about mass violence and religion, about international law, um, and about double standards, right, um, emerges from many other parts of the world, including from China, which increasingly says, the world doesn't understand us, this is anti-Chinese. When you mention our treatment of this people, you know, you are basically practicing a double standard, and when you talk about changing our society, you're basically talking about a double standard. It seems very bizarre to compare these cases. 
But the same impulse to kind of frame everything in zero-sum terms is common to our discourse now. So the Jerusalem Declaration is an attempt to kind of say, okay, let's, let's acknowledge the moment we're in and let's think about how we can critically debate these things without simply hitting the impasse where it's either yes, no, anti-Semitic, non-anti-Semitic. Yeah. Look, my own personal bias around the anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism conversation has always been that the question is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitic, is a totally uninteresting question because it's not an empirical question. Obviously, the answer is no. Is an apple an orange? No, <laughs> right? But the, the interesting question is, when is anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism? And all three of these definitions start to traffic in that. But my personal view is because they are more closer to the halakha side, the law side, than the lore side, um, they have to make really concrete choices that make it seem as though they're making empirical declarative statements about these issues, when it's oftentimes much blurrier than that. The Jerusalem Declaration, for instance, says explicitly, boycott divestments and sanctions are commonplace, nonviolent forms of political protest against states. In the Israeli case, they are not in and of themselves anti-Semitic. Okay, but there are, there are a lot of anti-Semites hanging around the BDS movement, and there are a lot of times when BDS does traffic in anti-Semitism. So my, I guess my personal desire out of all of this is that everybody acknowledge these are at best educational tools, and then force us to teach with them, right? Force us as educators to say with our students or with our communities, let's look at these three together, let's hold them up to each other, and then let's ask questions of what are the places where we experience these phenomena as anti-Semitic, or more than just what we experience, what's at stake for all of us in making this definition or that. But I guess that's what goes back to what we were talking about before, why there are sometimes the crisis motivates us to want the law process more than the kind of negotiated inside the study hall uh, discussion and debate of this matter. Absolutely. I mean, I would simply, I would agree with you. And I would say that one of the problems we have is we've effectively crossed the Rubicon into saying anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are indistinguishable. When I say we, I mean not all of us in the Jewish community and beyond, but you know, leading communal organizations and leading scholars have effectively said that is the case, and that leaves us nowhere to go. And I think these two new declarations are an attempt to pull back from that and say, we always have to ask, as you said, Yehuda, it's the when and the how. And that's the hard work of moral reasoning we do. But we have to start by saying it's possible that they're separate, right? Because we've moved so far towards collapsing them because of the focus on rhetoric and the identity of certain actors and who's saying it, that it doesn't leave us any place to go. In connection with that, I was struck, um, I, I was asked to write an essay for a volume called Keywords in the Study of Anti-Semitism. So they asked me to write about anti-Zionism. So I went to look because I've been raised with generations of great scholars writing about it. But what was striking is every scholar began by saying anti-Zionism, of course, is not the same thing as anti-Semitism in theory, but now I'm going to go on to show you how it is, right? And it didn't leave us much room to talk about more. What are the terms? What are the ways in which these interact? What are the different kinds of anti-Zionism that have historically existed? We know they're there. We know they're there today. And we have to be able to say what it is and what it isn't if we're going to move forward. The examples are very frustrating. I mean, I'll be the first to say that. It's one of the things I personally never liked about the IRA was the examples, which when you make a lamashal, when you make an example, what exactly is that? It's, it's sort of an add-on, but then it becomes taken as the real thing. And one thing to notice is that all three of these definitions, they give really 
basic, simple definitions of anti-Semitism, which are pretty parv, pretty unremarkable, and pretty unhelpful, actually. And then it's all about the examples, right? So no one has really solved that problem yet. All right, last big question. Yom HaShoah is a deeply political moment, but, but this is the time of year when in Jewish memory season, there's the most memory anxiety. Very rarely is there anxiety around Passover of fear that the Exodus will be forgotten, <laughs> right? We have a long history of not forgetting the Exodus, but there is chronic anxiety, deep anxiety, that with the demise of the survivor generation, the Holocaust will be forgotten. In the meantime, all of this work around the creation of law, of codifications, etc., does not seem to be stemming the tide of that anxiety. So maybe with not necessarily with your historian hat on, but with your Jewish thinker hat on, what should happen to maintain that living fire that you talked about before of Holocaust memory? What has to happen and what needs to grow in the culture of Jewish life? Not necessarily to make that anxiety go away. I think it's good for the Jews to be anxious about forgetting. We've we've been saying that line for thousands of years, don't forget. So we don't want the anxiety to go away, but we do want to have stronger tools that enable us to think that we are combating that anxiety. So what do you want to see happen in Jewish education and Jewish thought to help the Jewish people feel that we are doing our duty to, to remembering the sorrows that recently befell us? Look, I think I'll go back here to where we started talking about Raphael Lemkin. I think embedding our memory or leading ourselves through memory back to specific places and context, not just events, not just traumas of individuals, is a key starting point. And I think it's a key starting point because we have to balance a particular Jewish memory with our membership in a global humanity and global crises that often overlap or intersect. So what are we gonna to do to achieve that? We can't lose history. I think history here is a resource. I also think we cannot be afraid to compare. Uh, to me, the biggest problem we face is that as educators, we either tend to isolate everything and it becomes, we tell our story and then we make a move to talk about its applicability and meaning today. Or we jump right in to the latest crisis and we yank our story over and say, Holocaust means we need to stop doing this, right? And both of those are kind of extremes and superficial but understandable responses. So what do we do better? I think we have to be able to say, what was the Holocaust and what was genocide that happened in the 1940s across Europe and in other places, what did it look like? I don't think we have to see this as a zero-sum game between Shoah and other genocides. So we have to very delicately and very responsibly compare. That's a policy that is at odds with many museums today and many research agendas because they fear that comparison just leads us down to relativism. That's also something that is kind of in overdrive mode for other activists you know, and other leaders and other institutions where everything is comparison. But we have to be able to do that. And I actually think that that's possible. And I think if we go back to some of these foundational moments, we can understand that. So I'm optimistic that that's possible. It's very hard. But if we don't, we'll actually lose our not only our capacity to tell our story, but also our capacity to engage. Because I think that as much as Jews are fearful, we also, we want to be in the mix, right? We want to be able to articulate our role for ourselves, not just for our own reasons of protection, but because of our moral imperatives and our desire to be engaged with the world. So we have to develop a language that can allow us to do that. It's interesting, you know, it's like, uh... It's like a way of saying, okay, wherever you fall out on Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez comparing the situation at the border concentration camps from a Jewish memory perspective, isn't it great that we're talking about the analogy to concentration camps? I mean, that's a very dark thing to say, but I think I, I agree with. You're never going to resolve the question 
is this the same as that? It's a silly question. But if we're engaged with that question, we're both marshalling some of the resources of thinking about the past and also bridging towards the question of our moral responsibility in the future. And I guess I'll just conclude by answering my own question. I've felt for a long time that it's not just about retrieving the incidents of the past. In fact, I think for all of the unbelievable archival historical work that we've done around understanding the perpetration of the Holocaust, some of the most powerful work requires of us to kind of reclaim our creative agency in narrating that story for ourselves. And one of the most radical things that the Jews did throughout history was you read the Haggadah on Passover, you never actually recount the Exodus. You just tell stories about other people telling stories about the Exodus and turning it into their own stories. I think one of the great moments for us is for all of the important work that we talked about today around putting into practice the laws, the systems, the codifications to make sure that these things don't happen to us or others. There's also giving ourselves the freedom to be narrating these stories as though they happen to us, the writing of original poetry, the writing by non-survivors, <laughs> the writing of, of original literature. Those are the activities that we also do, which complement the legal activities and also create the kind of moral refinement that preserves the memory of the Holocaust. So my thanks to Jim Leffler, my guest, for being with us this week on Identity Crisis, and thanks to all of you for listening to our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Ronit Morris with assistance from Mary Miller and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. There's a tremendous amount of programming that we're doing online for Yom HaShoah and for Yom HaAzmaut next week. I hope you'll join us for some of that, uh, including some live memory-making activity, an event with new poets about Holocaust and Jewish memory, and more. We'd love to know what you think about this show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people find the show, and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.